And I hope that you will meet me in 2 Samuel chapter 4, and our focus today will be verses 1 to 12. What we have in this chapter is the continued unfolding of the bigger picture that we see revealed in chapter 3, verse 1, where we read, David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That is the overall trajectory that we see unfolding here. And it comes down to one last obstacle to David's rise to the throne of Israel. And that obstacle is King Ishbosheth, the son of the villainous king Saul, propped up and positioned by Saul's general Abner, and in many ways a puppet of Abner. But Abner had a feud with Ishbosheth and tried to change teams and come to David's corner, but ended up angering David's general, Joab and was assassinated. So Abner is no longer a threat on the scene. It remains that Ishbosheth is the only obstacle to David's rise to the throne. And in view of those circumstances, we're going to see two drastically different responses. And it points to the fact that in view of any set of circumstances, our response will inevitably be shaped by our convictions. Our convictions. You can just take, for example, the current pandemic. Some are scared to death, whereas some see it as a huge hoax. And many are somewhere in between. But whatever your response is, it will inevitably be shaped by your convictions, your most deeply held beliefs. And while we often use the word conviction in a religious context, you don't need to be religious to have convictions. We all have convictions. It's a question of what your convictions are. And whatever your convictions are will shape how you respond to your life and to your circumstances. And today I want to set before us, based on 2 Samuel 4, two drastically different kinds of conviction. And I want to use the image of a weather vane, a weather vane. And I can vividly remember the weather vane that stood on top of the garage at my grandfather's farm in Kentucky. His happened to have a cow on top, but I remember standing outside and and watching it turn with the wind. Whichever way the wind was blowing, that's where the weather vane would point. It's common, especially in Europe, for weather vanes to have a rooster on top but they all serve the same purpose. They point in the direction of the wind. And consequently, we can describe a certain kind of conviction as weather vane 
conviction. It's a conviction that hopes to profit from the goodness of God. Whether vain conviction hopes to profit, to gain from the goodness of God. Whereas, unwavering conviction hopes to profit from the God who is good. Unwavering conviction hopes to profit, to gain from the God who is good. To put it another way, do you want to get good things from God? Or do you want God? Those are the alternatives before us. And we need to know that if what we want is goodness, and we want to profit, we want to gain by good things that come from a good God, well, that's actually going to lead to disappointment. Because life is not good all the time, is it? And it's going to lead to discouragement as we look around us, and especially in a time like this, and we expect God to show his goodness to us and to do good things for us all the time. And we see this and we think, how can God possibly be at work? But if we have the unwavering conviction that God is good, then what we want, above all, whether our circumstances are good or bad, is God, God Himself. Not just what we can get from God, but God. We want to know God, we want to enjoy God, we want to glorify God, and we want to obey God, come what may. But what so often gets in the way of that is something we need to confess about ourselves, and that is that as human beings, we want to get as much as we can for as little as we can. We are a gimme, gimme, gimme culture, and we are gimme, gimme, gimme people, and we tend to chase one dopamine rush after another. And if we don't immediately see how we can profit from something, how we can use something, how something is, is useful to us, well then we change the channel or we turn it off or we go elsewhere. We give up. We want news we can use, right? But to profit from God Himself requires patience and perseverance and a deeper desire. But I'm not naive. There are many who simply won't make it to the end of this message because they don't have the patience to. There are many who have no desire to watch an online worship service because the reason they go to church is not to get the Word of God preached and proclaimed and celebrated, they just do it out of habit. 
But God has a way of distinguishing between those who are in it for the right reasons and those who are not. And so I challenge you as we work our way through 2 Samuel 4 to examine your heart, to examine your motives, to examine your life, and be honest about the kind of conviction that is driving your response to your circumstances. Is it weather vane conviction or is it unwavering conviction? Let's read together, beginning at verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now, Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Baana, and the other, Rechab. They were sons of Ramon the Berethite from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beeroth fled to Gitaim and have resided there as foreigners to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Pausing there. Notice Ishbosheth's reaction to the news that Abner has been killed. And notice how all Israel responds to both the news that Abner is dead and the news that Ishbosheth has lost his courage. We read literally that his hands became weak. And hands in biblical symbolism stand for your ability to act, to be decisive, to do something. Ishbosheth, which means man of shame, now is left to his shame without Abner. He's left to the fact that he has been resisting God. He has fought against God's chosen king, David. And now he has no more strength. He has no more possibility of reigning. His options are limited. And all Israel is with him. They're dismayed. They're alarmed. And it shows us that something we need to understand, if, if we're to know the difference between weather vane conviction and unwavering conviction, is that weather vane conviction turns with the strength of the wind. It blows and it moves as the wind blows and moves. Whereas, unwavering conviction, conviction that hopes to profit from God, God himself, 
turns to the source of the wind. The source of the wind. You see how this plays out. Look at their weakness here, which illustrates the larger weakness of the house of Saul. Ishbosheth has no more courage. All Israel is alarmed. And the details about Jonathan's son, who's disabled, are mentioned parenthetically to show that this is what remains of the house of Saul. If Ishbosheth were to give up the throne, here's the heir. He's too young to reign anyway, but in addition to that, even if he were given some kind of regency and eventually allowed to reign, he's not capable of leading Israel on the battlefield, which is the reason that Israel wanted a king in the first place. They wanted a general. They wanted a king who would be like the kings of the nations who could lead them into battle. You read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so because these winds of circumstance have blown in this direction so that it seems that there's no more hope in the house of Saul, they're at a total loss. They don't know what to do. And as long as your conviction turns with the strength of the wind in your life, however it happens to be blowing at any given time, whether it's blowing in a positive direction and it's filling your sails and you're ready to go, or whether you don't know which way it's blowing and you don't know where to turn, as long as it's driven by the winds of circumstance, this is going to be your lot as well. You need to prepare yourself for disappointment after disappointment, discouragement after discouragement. Because this is how life is. We have people, we have things, we have opportunities for a season, and then they're gone. We see their weakness, but also look at their stubbornness. Look at their stubbornness. In view of these circumstances, that Abner, the strong general, is dead, and Ishbosheth, this weak puppet, is on the throne, and the only heir to the throne isn't capable of ruling, in view of those circumstances, what do they do? Do they now decide, okay, God, we accept David as your chosen king. No, they don't. No. Still, after all this, they refuse to embrace what God has clearly revealed to be his plan. And you see this going all the way back to when the prophet Samuel told Saul, God has rejected you because you have rejected God. And he told him that twice. And then God fulfilled that rejection when Saul and Jonathan were killed at the hands of the Philistines in battle at the very end of 1 Samuel. Well, you think that would be clear enough evidence, and yet we see how the majority of God's people, Israel, are trying to gather up what remains 
of Saul's fallen house, and they put Ishbosheth on the throne. Because you'll remember, yes, David is king over Judah, but that's only one tribe. The other 11 tribes are still clinging to the dead corpse of Saul's dynasty. Oh, they're so stubborn. But can you identify? I can. God has a way of stripping away the things that we turn into idols. God has a way of getting our attention. And sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it hurts badly. But give thanks. God disciplines those whom He loves. God has not given up on His people. Still, after all that, He still hasn't given up on them and God is still working. God is still pursuing His people and He is going to have His way. And His people are going to submit to His King one way or the other. And I know for me, I am so thankful that God intervened in my life so that I can't take any credit for where I stand. I didn't find God. He found me. Is that your testimony as well? Or are you operating out of the illusion that somehow you read the signs or you evaluated the evidence and you chose God and you chose what was right? No. We are not capable by our own power or by our own objectivity, and we're not as objective as we like to think we are. We are not capable of choosing God. God must intervene. And praise God that he does, that he does, because on our own, we just go wherever the wind blows, and we end up in weakness, and we're stubborn, and we reject God's purposes. And what we need to remember is when you find yourself in a situation where God has taken something away, maybe God has even taken someone away, and you're at a loss, and you don't know where to go, and you don't know where to turn in the midst of that. Remember what Job said to his wife after God had allowed his children to be killed, after God had allowed him to be afflicted by diseases and sores, his wife said to him in Job 2, verse 9, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin and what he said. If what you want is God, then losing someone or losing something isn't going to wreck your life. 
Yes, it will hurt, and yes, you will regret that, and yes, you may hold on to those wounds for the rest of your life, but ultimately, God will never, ever disappoint you if what you want is Him. If you find your joy, if you find your contentment, you find your satisfaction in Him. As we read in Psalm 37, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Take delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. Not, not commit to getting good things from Him. Not commit to following Him as long as you see good blessings in your life. Commit to Him. Trust Him. Take delight in Him. And so when you find yourself at a loss, and that person you love, or that thing you love, or that idol, whatever it was that you were clinging to, maybe even worshiping, look above that to the God who brought that good person or that good thing, that good gift into your life. Look above, look up, and you will not be disappointed. Well, we see a very different response when we come to verse 5. Let's read together. Verses 5 to 8. Now, Rechab and Ba'anah, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Ba'anah slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they traveled all night by way of the Arabah. They brought the head to Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. The next thing we need to see is that weather vane conviction tries to harness the wind. It tries to harness the wind, to use the wind. Whereas unwavering conviction tries to hang on to righteousness at all costs. It tries to hang on to righteousness at all costs. It's not hard to understand where Rechab and Ba'ana are coming from. They see which way the wind's blowing. Clearly, clearly, God is on the side of David. And so they surmise that a good course of action, an expedient, sound course of action would be to eliminate that one last obstacle that is standing in the way of David's rise to the throne. So, what do they do? They sneak into Ishbosheth's house. They stab him. And you'll note that this murder is recounted twice in two different verses. Verse 6 and repeated in verse 7. They cut off his head and they bring his head to David as a trophy. And look at what they say to him. They say, this day the Lord, and you'll notice Lord is all, in all caps in your Bible. 
to show us they are utilizing God's personal name, sometimes pronounced Yahweh. They say, look, the Lord has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Look, it's over, David. We did it. You're king. Not just over Judah, but the whole of the nation. Aren't you proud of us? They see which way the wind is blowing and they try to harness it. They try to use it. For what? For their own gain. For their own profit. That is what is driving them. And it's not like they killed him in battle. They kill him in the most shameful and sinful way possible. They sneak into his bedroom and take advantage of him. And then they use the name of God to add God's credit to what they have done. As though God would be pleased by this. Remember in Psalm 37, verse 3, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will act. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Trust God and do good. Never use the direction of the wind as an excuse to do evil, to do something unrighteous. Now, I'm guessing none of you watching this message is contemplating an assassination attempt. If you are, don't do that, okay? But I'm guessing that's probably not where you are. However, we do need to be aware of this danger. The danger of falling into complacency. The danger of thinking, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been a member of a church for a long time. God knows my heart. God knows I have good intentions. Would it really hurt anything if, if I just tell this person off this one time? If I just do this one thing, if I just cave in to this temptation here and there, I mean, God knows, right? I've, I've earned up plenty of credit with God, right? If your convictions are driven by the weather vane, and you are just looking for how the wind is blowing, and you interpret your circumstances by whether they're good or bad, then you're going to fall prey to this kind of thinking, we need to be aware of that, and we need to watch out. We need to guard our hearts and our minds that we don't ever, ever justify sin on the basis of thinking we're doing a righteous act for God. And we sure need to watch out for using God to justify what we want to do, as they did. 
But this raises the question, what do we do? How, how are we to live when it seems like everything that is evil, everything that is wrong, is winning, is triumphing? They, they get away with this. Look at how wicked their motives are. And what are we supposed to do when it seems like what is wrong in the world is what is winning? Where is God in that? If God is good, again, remember Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in God's goodness and trust in God's timing. God in his own time and in his own way will deal with evil. It's not for us to fret about it or to become obsessed with it. Also, notice what we read in verse 13. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Think about that for a second. God laughs. When evil people conspire to do evil things. Now, it's not that God is, is happy about the evil that they do, but God laughs in the sense that God looks upon what they're doing. <laughs> what foolish, stubborn sinners. <laughs> and it raises the question for us, as Martin Luther famously put it, should we get angry about or cry about things that make God laugh? No. Don't fret about whichever way the wind looks like it's blowing. Remain committed to the Lord no matter what happens. Trust Him. Delight in Him. Now look at David's response to what they have done in verse 9. David answered Rechab and his brother Ba'ana, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he, that he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. The next distinction we need to make between these two different kinds of conviction is that whether vain conviction trusts in success. Trusts in success. Whereas unwavering conviction, unwavering conviction trusts in God's sustaining grace. We can imagine an objector saying to David here, uh, David, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, no, maybe you're not happy about the way they went about it, but 
Aren't you glad that your enemy is dead? This person who tried to kill you? This person who represents all the forces that have been fighting against you? Aren't you glad? I mean, no, maybe you don't welcome them into your administration, but can't you just send them off quietly and give thanks for what they've done? Look at what David says. As surely as the Lord lives, which is to say, I am deadly serious. God is the living one. And notice again, he uses God's personal name, Lord, in all caps. As surely as the Lord lives, and look at this next part, underline this, who has delivered me out of every trouble. That's who the Lord is to David. He's saying, God, by his sustaining grace, has brought me to this point. God has delivered me out of the hands of Saul and all of his conspiracies against me and even his own spear thrown at me. God has delivered me from the Philistines and all my enemies. God has delivered me from my enemies, the Malachites. God has brought me to this point. And so how then can I receive something this evil? How then can I compromise my principles at this point when God has brought me here? Think about it like this. This is a gruesome, grotesque scene by any measure. There's no questioning that. But it would be even more grotesque for David to receive this gift gladly. As gruesome and as grotesque as this is, for David now to compromise his principles and to call evil good, to call what is sinful holy, would be an abomination. It would be an act of treachery against the God who has brought him to this point. And it would be unjust for him not to punish them. He says, look, look at what I did to this guy back in chapter 1 who thought he was bringing me good news when he told me about Saul who was a wicked, villainous king. If that's how I treated that messenger, how much do you think I'm more to, I'm gonna, that I'm going to do to you when you have murdered an innocent man in his own bed? And you'll recall the high premium that God places on human life as described in Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. What they did, Rechab and Baana, to Ishbosheth is not just an act of, of anger, a sin of passion, we might say. This was premeditated murder, and God executes his judgment against them through what David does. Now, this is not to condone the way they're treated, but it is, for this time, justice. They're made an example of. So, is your conviction driven by the weather vane? 
Is your conviction driven by success? By what you have accomplished? By counting heads? By counting the majority? By using the metric of dollars and cents? By using your possessions? If any of those measures of success determine your actions, then you're in the same lot as Rechab and Ba'anah against David, God's anointed king. But if you have unwavering conviction that God is good, And we can know the goodness of God in any circumstance, no matter which way the wind is blowing, that we are going to rely on His sustaining grace. And we're not going to compromise, no matter how tempting it might be, no matter how easy it might seem, we won't do it. Consider this testimony of the Apostle Paul as he faced very difficult days and wondered where God was, we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Have you ever felt that way? I would rather die than face this circumstance or this possibility. That's where Paul is. Look at the second half of verse 9. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him, notice that, on him, not on what we get from him, but on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. On him we have set our hope. Do you believe in a God who raises the dead? We say, sure, I believe in God's power. And I, and I, I want to profit by God's goodness, okay? Can you say that? when your life is falling apart. Because this is where it matters. This is where the rubber hits the road. Because when Jesus went to the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, He went totally abandoned. No one was willing to stand with Him against the mob and against evil. They saw which way the wind was blowing, and it wasn't blowing in Jesus' favor. But look at what God did, the God who raises the dead. This is what we have to cling to and hang on to no matter what. Trust in God, the God who raises the dead, who has proven His goodness. No, you may not see His goodness now in this circumstance, No, you may not know how he could possibly bring good out of this thing, whatever it is, but you believe he is the God who raises 
the debt and who can deliver you. That is the God of David who said, the God who delivered me out of every trial, I trust in him and I'm not going to compromise now. I'm not going to quit now. I'm not going to give up on his sustaining grace. And that is the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you want to enjoy God, if you want to know God, if you want to glorify God and obey God, it starts with Him. Do you know Him? I pray that you, no matter where you are, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you've done or what you haven't done, I pray that you would submit your heart and your life to Jesus as Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our lives right now. Because we know as we look around us and we try to find you and we try to see how you could possibly be at work through these circumstances, we can so easily become discouraged and disappointed. But I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would lead us to lift up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see you. To see not just what you give to us, but to see you in all your glory, in all your goodness, and in all your grace for sinners like us. And I pray, Lord, that that would be enough. That that vision, that knowledge of who you are would be enough to sustain us as we trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, day in and day out, as you enable us by your Holy Spirit, Lord. We put our circumstances, we put our lives, we put it all in your loving and kind and gracious hands. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so glad that you could worship with us today. I pray that this service has been a blessing and an encouragement to you and your family, and I hope that you'll be able to join us again next week.